You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. My name is Rebecca Lawrence. I'm at the Sydney Environment Institute. And the event today is brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute. And it's a part of the Critical Companion uh, series. And today we have Christine Hansen speaking to us. Christine, uh, before I introduce you, I do want to acknowledge I'm standing on Camaragal land. I want to welcome today any Indigenous people that we have with us. But for those of us who aren't Indigenous, we're all standing on somebody else's land. So I want to acknowledge that and I want to acknowledge the ancestors of those lands, both past, past, present and future. And that's relevant because what we're talking about today very much has to do with the colonial project. Uh, Christine is, well, Christine, as I was Google stalking you, you hold many positions and I was trying to position you uh, between Sweden and Australia. You have affiliations with both Swedish and Australian institutions. At the moment, you're the manager of knowledge and content at Queen Victoria Museum and Art Gallery in Tasmania. And you also have a research project through Gothenburg University. Thanks so much, Rebecca. I'd like to start, of course, by acknowledging that I'm talking to you today from the land of the Stony Creek Nation, which is the site of the city of Launceston in Tasmania. And I also pay my respects to their rich life worlds, to their elders past, present and emerging. Not only was this land never ceded, but the traditions which I'll be discussing today still remain and will always remain the intellectual property of their traditional owners. I'd also like to, I did a terrible job of introducing myself, Rebecca, I really must amend those bios. Um, But I'd like to acknowledge and thank the Swedish Research Council. So I'd like to acknowledge and thank the Swedish Research Council for the generous funding, which is allowing me to conduct the research I'll be discussing this afternoon. Uh, I'd like to thank my colleagues in the Department of Historical Studies at Gothenburg University, where, as you said, I still have a research position, as well as the Queen Victoria Museum and Art Gallery. And I'd like to particularly acknowledge my friends and fellow adventurers, Helene, Aoife and Belinda, and hopefully some of them are here today. I recently discovered that the etymology of the word entanglement relates to the word for seaweed in Scandinavian languages, which is very convenient for me. The word for seaweed is tong, tang, tongue, tangle. It captures the way seaweed wraps itself around an oar or entwines with a fishing net. I learned about tong the summer I spent at a marine science research station in Stromstad, just south of the Sweden-Norway border. This sub-Arctic region was full of stories about BPA and microplastics in the water column of fish not spawning because of the nutrient-poor warm currents, and of bycatch species being trawled to extinction, not even noticed, just discarded as part of the industrial fishing complex. The research station was on a magnificent part of the Swedish coast and should have been a joy, but it was hard to fight with reality. The scientists who manned the station spent their own time and money sailing around the archipelago harbours in summer, educating people on the effect their rubbish was having on the species they studied. This watery orientation woke in me a deep shame that I'd never paid attention to the oceanic world. I'd never let the vastness and mystery of the water figure in my imagination. The rotting tong at the high tide mark 
now irreversibly tangled with plastic, was a problem of my own making. So when I began the research project that this talk comes out of two years ago, I went looking for reasons for the ocean to be the story. The task of the project is to find new narratives for ethnographic objects stranded in Europe. And my case study puts Australian material in the analytic frame. I address the background to this question in some detail in the blog on the site at SEI, so I won't repeat that here, but suffice to say, I had reason to be trawling the online catalogue of the Swedish Museums of World Cultures, looking for a clue. And at the same time, I just arrived in Tasmania from Sweden to work at the Queen Victoria Museum and Art Gallery and needed to connect my new home to the project. It was possible, of course. Tasmania is, it was impossible, of course. Tasmania is nowhere to be found in ethnographic collections. The gruesome colonial violence that dispossessed the Palawa was well over before the nascent science of anthropology inspired the global trade in object procurement. It was Nick Thomas at Cambridge University who started the discussion about entanglement for me with his seminal work, Entangled Objects, published in 1991. He was part of a school of new thinkers shining a light on issues of representation and the way he followed the stories of objects as they refracted through history in complex tangles of people, place, politics and power, changed museum practice forever. Donna Haraway writing on the entanglement of species and then Karen Barad following the logic at a cellular level, what even is an object, where does it start and end, led me into new questions of obligation and ethics. Museum collections, particularly troubled ethnographic collections, are full of these questions. Each and every object relentlessly embodying its entangled story, emerging from silence, even after a century of being entombed. So I studied the museum's shell collections, looking for a clue about which direction to move in. The magnificent carved pearl shell ridgy from the Kimberley, with its rich social history of pearling, the complexity of the warming Lewin current and its clearly articulated Bardi Jawi meanings was a contender for a while, hence the promotional image for this talk. But I soon realised that far northwest Australia was an unrealistic location to visit even before the pandemic. There were shell necklaces from Queensland, some Torres Strait Island material, Papua New Guinea, of course, mountains and stuff from the Pacific Islands. The patchy and often non-existent provenance, the overemphasis on some regions and complete absence of others, reminded me again of the randomness of these collections. The trails through the catalogue are still defined by the interests of the collectors, the categories largely depicting the adventures of late 19th and early 20th century men making their careers. The museum's online catalogue wasn't helpful, so I travelled to Stockholm to trawl the shelves. Aoife, the aptly titled Curator of Oceania, greeted us on the first morning in Stockholm with a tour of the in-house catalogue, a more comprehensive version than I had access to. She'd done some pre-screening, filtering everything that might possibly link to the search terms Australia, shells. Just a few taps on the keyboard and the seaweed wrapped around the oar. Tong, tangle a poor quality black and white photo, but unmistakable, impossible, but nevertheless apparent. 
a short string of marina shells, the emblem of Tasmanian Indigenous culture. They had no provenance, no information on how or why they were acquired other than necklace, shell, Australian, gift of Hjelmar Sørgenland, acquired in 1905, never exhibited, never researched, to all intents and purposes lost. This was the clue. Here was the reason to stay with the troubled oceans of the South and listen for stories beyond the ethnographic. Just one tiny object out of the hundreds of thousands held by the museum, but it was enough. The lack of provenance was part of the point. It helped to give weight to my thesis that regardless of their orphan status, these objects come from a time and place. They're made of leather, fibre, bone, timber, shell, feathers, stone. Most are more than 100 years old now. They're carriers of their own histories, even without their human relatives to speak for them. And these histories are not irrelevant. They can refract into stories of environmental concern, often bringing a 100-year-old history to research on contemporary issues. And Tasmanian ocean waters have plenty of issues. The next day, the shells had been located and were waiting for us in the store, cradled in a small cardboard box. They were even more impossible in life than on the screen. The blue-green marina, Phasianotrochus iris odontes, perfectly luminous, iridescent, the colours as strong as any I've seen. The exposed pearlescent surface refracting light and history. We looked at them under a microscope, wondered over the stringing, speculated on their journey to the deep north. Here was the southern ocean in a cardboard box. Back in Launceston, I began to notice shell necklaces everywhere. We talk about them, we covet them, or at least I do, and we're fascinated by their making. And in that, we're no different from every other generation charmed by the iridescence of our marine kin, including my mother and her ubiquitous pearl necklace. As I let the impossible discovery come fully into focus, I began to see how the Stockholm shells not only refracted into the most urgent questions of the moment for Tasmania, but also into an intimate question about their mysterious allure. The iridescence of the shells is, of course, their most striking feature. The reason for their use is jewellery. Pearlescence has been valued for as long as there have been humans, which is not very long compared to the shell itself. This fossil nautiloid shell with its original iridescent nacre clearly visible is layered in fossilised asphalt limestone dating to around 300 million years ago. Despite its age and the deep time fascination humans have had with nacre, the substance that makes the shell pearlescent, it's not fully understood. We know it's secreted by the mollusk onto the inner surface of the shell, creating a smooth lining that defends the soft tissue against parasites and damaging debris. It's composed of minuscule hexagonal platelets of aragonite, a form of calcium carbonate, arranged in parallel layers built on top of each other in the pattern of house bricks. These layers are separated by microns of organic silk-like proteins called elastic biopolymers. These laminations of brittle platelet and elastic make the material strong and resilient, resilient almost as strong as silicon. 
There is some observation that the shells of contemporary marina might be decreasing in thickness. Not much research has been done on the subject and no one really knows why, but thinning shell in other locations has been linked to acidifying oceans. The skeletal remains of the ancestral marina in Stockholm might help us shed some light on this issue. If we know nothing more about these shells in the collection other than their acquisition date more than 115 years ago, that is still enormously useful. They bring with them missing baseline data that might tell us important stories of change. The immediate and most obvious question they raise, of course, is what has happened to the world they emerged from in the intervening years? The consequences of our recent past are now becoming increasingly apparent for both human and mollusks. Today, marina shells are disappearing from the coastal waters of Tasmania, caught in a perfect storm of warming waters, habitat loss and predation. This is a wicked problem which starts not with the mollusks, but with the seaweed. Marina shells live on giant kelp, and although they eat it, or rather they eat the surface of it, they also rely on it for protection from predators. Giant kelp are not plants, but rather extremely large brown algae attached to the rocky bottom by a structure known as a holdfast. Since the giant kelp is not a plant, it doesn't have roots. Instead, it obtains all of its necessary nutrients directly from the water. This species is one of the fastest growing species in the world and under perfect conditions can grow up to 60 centimetres in a single day. Once an individual reaches the surface, it continues to grow horizontally, floating in large mats that shade the water column and seafloor below. In order to remain upright, each blade grows a gas-filled pod that floats the stalk. Together, the giant kelp strands create a dense forest that provides an important ecosystem in temperate coastal areas. This is the primary home of the marina mollusks. But these, these forests are not doing well. Warm water pushed down the coast by the East Australian current has stripped the waters off the Tasmanian coast of nutrients and brought new marine species, the combination of which has killed more than 95% of the giant kelp. The Southern Ocean, which surrounds Tasmania, is a global hotspot where temperatures have risen at nearly four times the global average. The impact of this warning on local ecosystems and fisheries has been severe. Ocean temperatures vary less than those on land and aquatic species are not adept at adjusting to such massive shifts. This trend has been exacerbated by extreme marine heat waves in three of the past five years. The kelp, which naturally gets wiped out by seasonal storm activity, can't form. Warm water has fewer nutrients than cool water and kelp forests, which do not have roots, need nutrient-rich water to grow. Marine ecologists at the University of Tasmania are now saying that Tassie is one of the worst, if not the worst, place in the world for the kelp forest loss due to the changing composition of the ocean community. The warmer water has also brought new species, like the long-spined sea urchin, in ever-increasing numbers. These voracious creatures have increased by 50% in Tasmanian waters over the past 20 years, equivalent to 200,000 additional urchins along the coast each year. 
They have left the ocean floor like an asphalt driveway. Tasmanian waters are now also home to species of kingfish, snapper and octopus that have migrated from New South Wales. Over the last couple of years, tropical fish such as rays and skates have been sighted off the northeast of the island in ever increasing numbers. Previously, the, south, the southernmost sighting of a manta ray was just south of Sydney. Following the story of the marina mollusk habitat loss eventually shifts the scale of inquiry to the planetary. Why is the water around Tasmania warming so fast? Why is it a global oceanic hotspot? Well, it's all to do with the East Australian current. The EAC starts at the Great Barrier Reef and travels south along the coast towards Sydney before turning eastward to New Zealand. But some of the water continues via a series of massive eddies southward. These whirlpools known as the EAC extension are around 200 kilometers wide and hundreds of meters deep. This swirling water eventually works its way past Victoria to the coast of Tasmania, where it disperses into the Southern Ocean and the sub-Antarctic seas. Oceanographers have been watching as each year, a larger portion of the EAC water ends up in the extension instead of breaking away towards New Zealand. This increase doesn't happen smoothly, but in erratic bursts. And it's these bursts that are so damaging to the kelp forests. The southward extent of the EAC is controlled by the collective behaviour of the winds between Australia and South America. Over the last 50 years, these winds have changed their pattern due to a strengthening climate system known as the South Annular Mode. The changes to this mode are largely attributed to a combination of ozone depletion and increasing atmospheric CO2. Over the course of the last 50 years, it's estimated that the entire East Australian current has moved over 350 kilometres to the south, and it's likely to keep going. This warming is causing a cascade of consequences for marine species, but it is only those in the upper trophic levels that we watch with any diligence. Our attention is caught by shifts observable to the human eye. The lack of compassion we have for life worlds outside of our own scale is measured by the lack of data we have on marine species. Marine scientists working in Tasmanian ecosystems know that threats to marine and estuarine species in the form of climate change, invasive species, fishing and catchment discharges are of sufficient magnitude to cause extinction. The problem is that our lack of ignorance of declining marine biodiversity results from an almost complete lack of systematic broad-scale sampling and an over-reliance on chemical data to monitor environmental trends. There is a fantasy among natural resource managers that extinction is a minor issue for marine plants and animals compared with terrestrial species. Even though no one would argue against the evidence that marine populations are depressed by fishing, pollution and other threats, and that local extinction is definitely possible, marine species are thought to be insulated against extinction by their large ranges and significant dispersal capabilities. This consensus is supported by available statistics. 
On the World Conservation Union Red List of Endangered Species, only 25% of listed animal species are marine, and only a single marine plant is listed. In reality, the almost complete absence of baseline population data for marine species, other than those commercially exploited or visible at the sea surface, makes it virtually impossible to successfully propose marine species for listing. Consequently, only one mollusk has been listed, despite the majority of the thousand plus mollusk species having not been sighted or collected alive during the past two decades. Regardless of modes of dispersal, few species possess refuges from all major threats to biodiversity at the same time. Climate change, introduced species, fishing and water quality. The lack of baseline data means that population declines for almost all species approaching extinction will go unnoticed. If the kelp forests are dying, then the life world of the marina shell is dying. And here the story refracts into matters of sovereignty. Because if the life world of the shells is dying, then the necklace-making traditions of Tasmanian Aboriginal women are seriously under threat. And it's here that the Stockholm shells cross back into the human world. Not a world of ethnographic curiosity, however, but a world infused with politics, history, tenacity and shells. Shell necklaces have always been portable objects, easily made and exchanged while on the move, and they've always been used in diplomatic missions. Early French voyagers exchanged goods with local people, swapping ashes, axes, fish hooks, knives, clothing and glass beads for necklaces. In recent years, necklaces have been presented to Princess Mary of Denmark and Camilla, Duchess of Cornwall, the latter instance in conjunction with a petition to the Queen. And when the new director arrived at QVNAG, where I work, she was presented with a beautiful string of green marina shells of which I'm deeply envious. They've also been used in ritual for as long as they've been made. In 1966, archeologist Rhys Jones reported several pierced shells in a cremation site on the Northwest, on the northwest coast, dated at approximately 2,500 years old. The oldest known full necklet is from a northwest is from a living site on the northwest coast, and is comprised of 32 king mariner shells, each pierced with a small hole. The necklace, it seems, had been placed with cremated remains in a burial pit about 1800 years ago. In 1837, a portrait done by Thomas Bock, depicted Water Bowagie wearing five loops of what must have been a magnificent necklace. The oldest provenance necklace still in existence that we can see today was made by Trollway woman Pilla Nemina in 1854, held in the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery in Hobart. Pilla Nemina was taken by sealers from Tasmania's northeast as a young girl and in later years, while confined to the miserable camp at Oyster Cove, continued stringing shells. The women pierced each shell with a tool made from a jawbone and sharpened lower incisor of a kangaroo or wallaby. They were then threaded on kangaroo tail sinews, 
or on string made from natural fibres smoked over a fire and rubbed in grass to remove their outer coating before being polished with penguin or mutton blurred oil. As new tools made their way into the stringer's world, their techniques and designs adapted. Metal needles and cotton thread allowed them to use shells in increasingly smaller sizes and produce more necklaces of longer strings. At the regular Thursday markets at Waibalina Mission on Flinders Island during the 1830s, Aboriginal women sold necklaces to visitors and sent them for sale to Launceston. They supported their families with this work, also exchanging necklaces for food and clothes in the general store in Flinders Island. This trade resulted in the Bowman Collection, which is now held by the Furnow Museum, a really important collection of early shell necklaces. On nearby Cape Barren Island, women continued to collect shells, stringing them at night by the light of oil lamps. They also sold many of the best examples to a local church minister, and it was these necklaces which are the foundation for the important collection in the Stanley Museum. And on it went, each generation finding a means to continue the shell work of their ancestors. While reciting this brief history gives us no real understanding of the Stockholm shells, I'm doing it for a reason. And it's to say specifically, and against the still commonly held notion that Aboriginal Tasmanians ceased to exist. Not only did Aboriginal people survive, their making traditions tenaciously and stubbornly remained uninterrupted all the way to today. For contemporary necklace makers, the act of making is a profoundly meaningful way of connecting with country and with history. It expresses the family line and the unbroken spring of, string of practice handed down the generations against all odds. Necklace work requires intimate knowledge of place. Places to collect, seasons, beaches, sea plants and tides. And it's complex. There's the harvesting and collecting, cleaning and stripping, sorting and preparing for stringing, and finally the threading using patterns and combinations of different shells. For more than six generations, the women of Lola Greeno's family have watched the same beaches, the same species. And that's why her observations matter. Lola is perhaps the most famous of the contemporary stringers, with her work represented in all of the major public collections in Australia. And she's quite clear that Aboriginal people are also scientists. But while Western scientific traditions struggle to observe lower trophic marine extinction, Indigenous knowledge is out in front, not only noticing, but able to provide baseline data in the form of both material, the shells, and oral testimony. And what Lola knows is that marina shell numbers are declining dramatically. She's watched the enormous change in kelp and seaweed growth over the past 20 years and how the loss of kelp forest has contributed to the erosion of the seabeds. She's also watched in the same moment of environmental decline, the significance of this cultural practice finally being acknowledged. She herself has played no small part in the recognition and respect accorded to Tasmanian Aboriginal people and culture today. So much so that shell necklaces were listed as a Tasmanian heritage icon by the National Trust of Australia in 2009. 
As Lola tells it, a lot of my work is about cultural awareness, letting people know what we did, what we are doing, and it's about passing on to future families, for them to know about where we come from. I think you've always got to be grounded in your culture. You know, what means so much to you and your family? I think that's really important to be preserved for younger generations. Today, Lola's son, Dean, is gathering the stories. While Lola predicts that in 10 years, there will be no marina shells with which to make necklaces, Dean is documenting necklace making techniques. He sees this work as extremely urgent, brought into sharp focus with the death of several elders in the past few years. Trot away intellectual artist and cultural lineage holder, Julie Goff, tells us that necklace making is one of the few traditions that have continued without interruption since before colonization of Tasmania in 1803. Despite dispossession and relocation from their lands, Julie's ancestors did not stop making during the hardest times. It is in the spirit of acknowledging their determination that the transmission of shell necklace making continues. And by their making, Tasmanian Aboriginal people made a future. She wrote this in 2009. <clears throat> it's sobering to reflect on how the intervening 21 years have altered the traje trajectory of this unbroken lineage. And this is perhaps where I exit the story of the makers. This is not my tradition, and I'm coming closer to the borders of unceded sovereignty, the closer I get to discussing the specifics of the craft. Breaching borders is one of the perils of working with ethnographic material. And in some ways, it's the reason I began this work. My point was to demonstrate that unprovenanced or poorly provenanced material has other stories to tell beyond the flattening narrative of cultural exemplar. And that these stories might be important. Scientific frames could help us to discover new uses for historic objects such as offering some contribution to missing baseline environmental data. Hence the title of this talk, Objects of Science and Culture. The title also hints at the reuniting of science and culture through Indigenous knowledge systems, where such epistemic silos are irrelevant. And even though I exit the story of the makers from here, the shells have not yet left me off the hook. Sometimes provenance is as compelling as pearlescence. Enter Hilmar Sergenind, the giver of the shells. As it happens, Herr Sergenind had something of a public role as a policeman for the South Australian Police Force from 1880 to 1896. He'd started life as the younger son of a wealthy, a wealthy Swedish hotelier, but soon left his home of Gothenburg coincidentally my own hometown before moving to Tasmania, for the El Dorado of cattle farming in Germany. He failed at this enterprise, unsurprisingly, and reading between the lines quite spectacularly. So someone suggested he try Australia. What could be more perfect? A failed minor noble cattle farmer. Welcome to the wide brown land. <clears throat> for a while, the young Sergeland exceeded excelled at doing absolutely nothing, but eventually tired of grifting and landed in the South Australian Police Force, of course he did, 
as an officer in the crew manning the Port of Adelaide. Here he boarded ships looking for absconders and contraband and what stories he could tell of his life in the force. Fortunately for us, he did in the form of a chatty weekly newspaper column. You can imagine our excitement when what had seemed like a dead end for provenance started to open so seamlessly. The only trouble is that nowhere does Sergelin talk about having been to Tasmania. What he does talk about is the Port of Adelaide and the maritime traffic in which he enforced the law, which opens up another possibility. Perhaps the necklace came from one of the Aboriginal women living on Kangaroo Island. The logic of this works, the geography, the dependence on watercraft, Sergelin's deep association with the ports, although there's a lot more research to do. I fantasise that her Sergelin left a detailed diary that mentions the necklace and its origins, but I'm not banking on it. Meanwhile, the facts such as we know them lead us to consider the shells in the light of Reby Taylor's work that pieces the story of the Kangaroo Island families together. If the shells do relate to that history, then they would be a stunning find, up there with the Tasmanian kelp water carrier in the British Museum. And the Swedish National Museum of Ethnography would unexpectedly find itself in possession of a treasure. There's more to understand about these shells. They are old and worn and have traces of grime. The human story is yet to be fully discovered and probably not by me. I'm not of their lineage, but I can traverse the edges of their world and through them call my attention to the place I now call home because I'm well and truly entangled in this oceanic world. Thanks to the unbroken lineage of stringers that make my experience of this place so much richer. And thank you to all of you for joining us this afternoon. Uh, Christine, I, I read the piece and I encourage anybody else to read the piece that Christine wrote for the SEIR website, which gives a really a lovely introduction to what you've spoken about today. Um, and I think what you've done today really beautifully, Christine, is, um, is bring the human face to these, to these shells. Uh, to really centre Indigenous agency as a part of the story of these shells, that these shells did belong to people, they belonged to country. And even if you can't trace these specific shells back to specific people, you have tried to do that in your way by bringing to the fore the work of people like Lola and, and, and their work in keeping cultural practices alive. So I think you're really to be commended for that work. It's a really, um, it's a much more positive story to tell of these shells than the one I'm about to tell. Uh, so, you know, when I read your piece, Christine, um, and the few emails we've had, for anybody who doesn't know, I also have a deep connection to Scandinavia. I've, I've lived there for 14 years and have worked with Sami people there. And one question that's driven me and that your research provokes me to think about again, Christine, is what is colonialism and what is Sweden's role in various colonial projects? Now, you kind of tell the story of Hare Sörgelind, I think his name was, the police officer that came across these shells. And, you know, you know, that's an interesting story. It's an anecdote. But I wonder also that is it just a coincidence that Sweden and the Ethnographic Museum has, the, has this collection of cultural artefacts? You know, I think there's, some, there's something else going on, which I think you'd probably agree with. 
Um, and Sweden has very much been not just complicit, but really a front runner when it comes to the colonial project uh, through what you have called, Christine, the collecting craze. You know, they've got lots of collections. They don't know what to do with them. And Sweden's also battling its own repatriation challenges at home with, uh, with skeletal remains of Sami people, Indigenous people in museums throughout Sweden, which they've not yet returned to Sami communities. So Sweden has very much run its own colonial project. And I think in some way, the theft of these, well, I don't know if it was theft, maybe it wasn't, maybe it was a gift, these, this, this necklace of shells, but in this broader context of the theft of indigenous artifacts bring, being brought back to Europe. I just want to take a little tangent, Christine, as a historian, hopefully you will um, humour me into history. And that is in Sweden, the north of Sweden in the 1600s was known as the land of the future. And when the first silver deposits were found in the north of Sweden, the Swedish state at that time got very excited and said, this will be the Sweden's West Indies. Now, by the 1800s, when the Industrial Revolution took hold, there was very much the view that Sweden, the north of Sweden, Sami homelands, were a raw, a depot of raw materials, and they would be, quote, the equivalent of Africa or India for England. And so there was this idea throughout Swedish history that the North was very much Sweden's own colonial project. And it was, it, that was where Sweden was to make its mark as an empire. But what has happened in modern day Sweden is that Sweden very much wants it to remove itself from that history. And so it has stated unequivocally, you know, as, as recently as the 80s and the 90s, that Sweden, Sweden has no colonial history. And the Swedish government has stated, quote, it's impossible to compare the Swedish influence over the traditional Sami territories with what is ordinarily called colonialism. And so if we think about entanglements, Christine, I'm interested in how can we untangle this colonial project that Sweden has very much been enmeshed in and is in many ways unable to acknowledge with the kind of cultural artefacts from other people's homelands that Sweden has acquired in its museums. What might be some of the connections there? How do you find that museums in Sweden are viewing these cultural artefacts? Are they making connections between the cultural artefacts that they have from Indigenous people in Tasmania and that they're holding in their, muse their museums and the challenges they're facing at home being challenged by Sami people around skeletal remains, for example, that they're still holding on to? Yeah, thanks, Rebecca. Um, that, that, that's a very dense question. <laughs> and I think one of the reasons it's dense because collections are dense. So, you know, collections are not one thing. And I think I make that point in the little article that I wrote. They were intended to be encyclopedic. And, it's, and it was that intention that sent them off down the track of being so broad uh, that to untangle them is a job of generations. Where do you start? Um, so... You, you can only do it object by object. And I wouldn't say that there has been a lot of focus before now on this 
these shells actually found them in the in the store probably not looked at since 1905 so they're not exactly the highest priority material um, but in terms of Sweden's narrating its colonial past um, it, it's it's a very very complicated part of Swedish society I'm sure you'll agree because the Swedes really see themselves as extremely liberal and have really put a lot of energy into what they call decolonizing museum practice. In actual fact, it's a post-colonial narrative laid over the top of the collections, which again, I sort of mentioned in the article. And actually, long term, it doesn't really go anywhere. You know, that's starting to fade. The post-colonial moment in museums is heading uh, down the other side of the slope. I think it, you know, maybe hit the peak in the early 2000s. Um, and there was definitely some great work. The World Cultures Museum in Gothenburg, for example, which holds the collections of the East India, Swedish East India Company, for goodness sake. Um, you know, they really gave it a good shot. And yet nothing changed in the storehouses. Nothing. You could still, you know, this, it's still the same card catalogue, still the same taxonomies of um cultures and race you know there's still the same language and i think any museum scholar immediately hits the the resistance to change in the in the um structures that hold collections together so it's, it's very complicated but at the same time swedes are um at least part of swedish society and of course it's not a one thing um are willing to have the conversation about uh, colonising Sami, and particularly the North has really come into much sharper focus, even since I've been in Sweden, which was, I know, 10 years ago, I moved there. So, yeah, it's it's complicated. The, the plunder of the North is one of the great shames that's not well known, though. So thank you, Christine. Thank you, everybody. Thank you to the Sydney Environment Institute, to Evie, for pulling this together, for Michelle and Anne for being the mastermind behind this. Thank you, everybody. Um, be well. You're listening to the SEI podcast series brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney.